I am the god Thor. I am the war god. I am the thunderer. Here in my Northland, my fastness and fortress, reign I forever. Force rules the world still, has ruled it, shall rule it. Meekness is weakness. Strength is triumphant. Over the whole earth still it is Thor's day. Thou art a god too, O Galilean. And thus, single-handed unto the combat, gauntlet or gospel, here I defy thee. Excerpts from The Challenge of Thor, a poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. A little more than 1,300 years ago, the region we now know as Germany was a battleground between the missionary efforts of the Anglo-Saxon Christian Church and the Germanic pagans living in the Frankish Empire. These pagans were worshippers of the old Norse gods, mainly known by their Scandinavian names, Thor, Odin, Freya, and more. That pagan world was a bloody, brutal world, full of tribal conflict, murder, warring, human sacrifice, and all manner of barbaric violence. Into that world, a Benedictine monk named Boniface, along with a cohort of his Christian brothers, boldly defied the pagan gods, seeking the freedom of the Germanic pagans from the bloodthirsty wraiths demanding their worship. To show the supremacy of the Christian god over the pagan idols, Boniface determined to walk after the prophet Elijah in his showdown with the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. Sometime around the year 723 in the town of Geismar, Boniface strode up to a great oak tree, a tree known to the locals as Thor's Oak, dedicated to the worship of the Norse god of thunder, and declared his intentions to chop down the tree in Christ's name. The Germanic pagans laughed. They knew that if anyone so much as broke a twig from their sacred tree, Thor would surely strike that one down with his lightning before the branch hit the forest floor. But Boniface set his face, determined to make the attempt. The tree before him, he stripped to the waist, took up his trusty axe, and began to rain blow after blow into the trunk of the sacred tree. Some accounts say that a mighty wind began to blow out of nowhere, felling the tree with a great crash before Boniface could even complete the task with his axe. Either way, the astonished pagans, seeing the apparent impotence of their god to stand against this axe-wielding servant of Yahweh, converted to the Christian faith and submitted to Christian baptism. Best of all, Boniface and his companions used the timber from the mighty tree to raise a house for Christian worship, right there in the green groves of the converted pagans. After several decades of courageous missions work in the Germanic fields of the Frankish Empire, Boniface was martyred, pouring out his blood into the dark earth of the Germanic forest, a final gift to the lost pagans in hopes that even they would turn and bend the knee to Christ. Now he looks on from the great cloud of Christ's witnesses as many of his spiritual descendants continue to walk in his footsteps, taking up the weapons of their warfare in high defiance of the crumbling and retreating demonic empire. And so, though Thor may thunder his challenge to the crucified Galilean, throwing down his bloody gauntlet, in the end, the Galilean's gospel proves the mightier. The King's Hall podcast exists to make self-ruled men who rule well and win the world. The story you just heard, the story of St. Boniface and Thor's Oak, is going to serve as something of a framework for where we're going here in the first season of the King's Hall podcast. So this podcast is aimed at Christendom. 
right? It's aimed at making self-ruled men who will make godly households that will build fruitful churches and businesses and villages and towns and cities and nations. And so you can think about this project as something of a blueprint for building a cathedral, basically. If Christendom is a cathedral, where do we start, right? How do you lay a foundation that will hold this thing up for a few thousand years? What's a flying buttress? How do you make one? Who's going to carve the gargoyles, basically, on this thing and how? So we're going to be talking in the first season about how to build that cathedral, how we can build the next Christendom in, and maybe even with, in some cases, the rubble of that last one. And that's where the Boniface story comes in, because right away, you know the first day when you pull up to the job site for this cathedral, you're going to find out two things very quickly. First, that the pagans have built a bunch of shrines and they've planted their green groves in high places and generally occupy the place where we fully intend to build. And we're not interested in retreating to some remote corner of the world to build this cathedral. Christendom isn't going to be put up on a remote island somewhere that they haven't gotten to yet in some kind of effort to avoid, you know, clashing with them. No, Christianity is a religion of conquest. In the Old Testament shadows, we see God built a temple and called the nations to that temple. But the New Testament substance uh, that point, or that all of that pointed to, I could say, is a, a people who are God's temple, and God is sending his temple to the nations now, and he's making his temple out of the nation. So Old Testament, you know, you have physical temple, come to this temple and worship Yahweh. New Testament, the substance revealed by all of that shadow and type is that we are God's temple. We're living stones, Peter says, built up into a structure for his own possessions. And so we're sent to the nations to make this temple out of the nations. So we're going to be playing offense in that plan right? The scriptures make that plain. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all Christ commanded. And all of that, that's offense talk, right? We're going to play some defense along the way, but that's fundamentally offense. And so like Boniface, we're going to need our axe to confront the pagan gods, But there's another reason that we need Boniface and his acts, because secondly, when you show up to this job site to build this cathedral of Christendom, the job site is also cluttered with evangelical strip malls, mega church shanty towns, and all sorts of Christian clutter too, right? There's not just pagan clutter to to be confronted and, and removed and to clear the way for this cathedral. There's Christian clutter. So we've got grifters over the town square hawking microwavable five second, you know, you know, six easy steps to Christianity sorts of things. Others are protesting the whole thing. They're mad that we're trying to build a cathedral at all because the antichrist is coming and it's all going to burn. But it's not just pagan works that will need to be cleared away for this building project. There's a whole lot of shoddy work done by Christians too. Somewhere a while back, you could say someone put linoleum over the hardwood to mix the metaphor. And so in these first few episodes, really before we get into the blueprints for this Christendom Cathedral, we're going to need to do some demolition work, which is Eric's favorite kind of work, right? We're going to need to tear some things down. We're going to need to look back over our shoulder and ask where it was that things went wrong and why, lest we repeat the same errors. Judgment begins with the household of God, and so we need to start there. 
So after we do that, then we'll turn our sights in the next episodes after that on, to, on the pagan idols and ask which gods we need to poke in the eye and whose oak trees we need to chop down, etc. But first, we want to sink our axe into that strip mall that the Christians have put up on our job site. And so we'll be looking at some of the models of Christianity that won't work going forward. These models of Christianity that will not produce a cathedral, will not produce Christendom. And so we're going to need a, we're not going to reform those models. We're going to knock them down. We're going to say no from the beginning to those models. And so the first one that we're going to set our sights on, you might call the big, fast and famous model, which is not original to us. I think the first time I heard that was from a guy named Zach S. Wine, which I think he's four lady pastors and stuff. So probably don't, you know, <laughs> probably, <laughs> probably you know, but, but this isn't original to, to us. The big fast and famous model though, is, is what we're going to turn our sights on here in this first episode. So guys, what do we mean by big, fast and famous? What are some examples of this mentality? Yeah, I think fundamentally you've got like the thousand plus member mega churches. Um, you've got celebrity pastors, really what we've seen over the last couple of decades, really starting in the seventies is sort of like Hillsong worship. So it's really like a, going to a rock concert um, and a lot of stuff that's really practical, like moving away from traditional, you know, pastoral discipline, ecclesiology, um, but also moving to things like, you know, every week in church, if you're at Hillsong, like we, we perform different music because the main point of it is actually to sell albums. Um, spicy. Spicy. That's right. Um, so I think a lot of that, too, is... Um, you know, I, for my money, I think a lot of it got driven by Billy Graham, actually. Mm. So really, a change in the 20th century was you had this fixation with mass media. So mass media, people started to realize we can reach a lot of people really quickly. And I think that's what fuels, you know, you get into people like Rick Warren in the 70s and 80s. Mm, um, you yeah. get into Bill Hybels, and then it takes you to Mark Driscoll. And really what it was all about is we can build a platform almost overnight if we have the right technological mm, yeah. tools. and so Franchise they, it. Yeah, if using franchise models. I think fundamentally Big Fast and Famous to me is about what happens when brand marketing comes to church. Ooh. So I, I'm going to leave it with that, and I'm going to kick it to Dan because, Dan, I think you could help unpack that. You've seen it up I close and personal. I was a business school. You're Ooh. a business guy. That, that was two Zs. Actually, you know, when I, when I started to define this, I realized that, with any philosophy that we're going to critique yeah. in these shanty towns that you're claiming they're shanties anyway. Yeah. They think that they're pretty great. Oh, you know, yeah. you've got like the crystal palace or oh, crystal yeah. cathedral. That's, that's right. right. That's right. right. Crystal, I they mean, think the linoleum belongs over the hardwood shanty town. That's what it that's is. Right. Shanty town. No, <laughs> when we're critiquing any philosophy and we're going to be critical of it, we're going to have to untangle goodness and truth from mm. badness and lies. That's good. It's kind of like gum in your kid's hair. Mm. There are good parts and there are bad parts and you're trying to untangle it. And oh, so you mean the, the hair is the good part. Well, uh, yeah, you don't, I mean, you don't want to, yeah. Like your daughter, you don't want to have to shave little Daphne's head. Oh man. I mean those golden locks. So for example, you look at big, fast and famous. Okay. Yeah. That's, this is what we're critiquing. If you were to ask pastors from almost any denomination, do you want your church to grow? They would say yes. I mean, almost. Yeah, they say, all of doesn't, them would say yes. doesn't Jesus want my church yeah, to that's grow? That's right. I want my church to grow. Uh, so church growth is seen as a good thing. And a lot of times it is. It is a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, but where things get sticky, like the vending machine gumball that you should not have bought that is in little Daphne's hair in this illustration, <laughs> yeah. is how? 
how are you going to grow it? How are you going to grow it? And, and so kind of piggybacking off of what you said, Eric, yeah, was that church growth for the sake of church growth is the ideology of cancer. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. I, Cause it spreads it, fast. Yeah, it spreads fast. Yep. And it's just growth for growth's sake. So you really get into Dan, you really get into what kind of growth is it? Cause one of the things I thought about as we were preparing for this is Mars Hill, right? We've been listening to the Christianity Today podcast, hating most of it, loving a lot of what Mark did actually. <laughs> uh, but what's interesting to me is 15,000 people were part of the Mars Hill, the immediate Mars Hill movement. Mm-hmm. Mark steps down and it's done overnight. Yeah. So I immediately said to myself, that was not healthy growth. It could not have been like Redwood style, deep rooted, healthy Christian, sanctified growth, right? Yeah, and yep. so the way that these these models typically follow is is like a marketing campaign. Yeah. And so again, this is sticky, right? Because we have things like we want to be known as as being respectable and having being well well thought of by outsiders to a degree, yeah. Yeah. obviously. Um, so there's good, and then there's bad because you have branding, right? You have a brand. Right. Yeah. Uh, Paul the apostle had a brand. He was known, right? But he didn't foster his brand through marketing or his social media page or 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 whatever. And so there's there's both the good and the bad. But I think that with this big fast famous model, what you really have is these churches that have turned where where else are you trying to get people to buy your product? It's it's in business. And so they have turned to the business world, like you said, to have marketing campaigns, brand management, value ads, like childcare, coffee shops, programs. You have entertainment, dynamic speakers, music, which we'll touch on later, and even public relations campaigns through painting houses or social welfare type programs that are pretty much PR campaigns. Right. They're basically built on sounding the trumpet before you as you give. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what those are because yeah. th- th- that's what businesses do. They sound like Why else would they do it? They exist to make money. You know, that's their internal logic. So, yeah, of course, they're going to sound the Trump. Well, and the thing is, is all of these you can see at every step. Why I say why I prefaced there's good and bad like social right. welfare is actually good to a point. Right. It depends on the purpose. And so what these churches incentivize, they get right. Yeah. I mean, that's just a rule. They get customers is what they get. And customers are there for socio-religious goods and services. And it's really customers in a world of customers. Yeah. And so you can begin to see why this is more of a strip mall version of Christianity than a cathedral is because they relate to the church as customers. Yeah. It's a consumer driven model. Yes. Not, they don't produce. They basically say, um, okay, the, the pastor is essentially the CEO, and he has some other pastors on his board that are like the other executives, and they dispense religious goods and services in exchange for giving. Or attendance, man. Or attendance, yeah. even. That's right. If, if you've ever been in leadership at a church, the number of times people try to leverage their attendance oh, yeah. to get you to do what they want, it's unbelievable. Yeah. I'll take my tithe. You know what? I'll take my tithe elsewhere. Yeah. You're like, what? Can you imagine a, a, a son saying that? Well, I'll take my chores elsewhere. <laughs> Not I'd mine. Be like, oh, you will? <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> no, you won't. I'll help you pack your socks. That's what my, mom, <laughs> yeah. my mom said. That's right. And even, you know, back to Eric's point, when you were talking about the, the re- that's not redwood tree growth, yeah. talking about when 
Mars Hill exploded and and there was certainly some some seeds that blew to the wind and took up in some other congregations that were started but you know if you think about it it's it's you could you could say that the trunk of the tree at Mars Hill was Mark he was the trunk Christ wasn't the trunk the church wasn't the trunk a guy was the trunk and so when the guy died or when the guy gets disqualified or when the guy gets leaves in scandal or whatever, then the tree dies. And the true church, it's not like that because who Christ is the trunk, right? <laughs> right? He's the vine where the branches. And so we grow off of Christ. And so we're all disposable. Like any of us can die. And if we're doing this thing right, any one of the pastors at our church should, you know, should be able to die. <laughs> that sounds bad. Should be able to die or move or, you know, even Lord, you know, God forbid, be disqualified. And the church should be able to continue and other men step in. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it kind of gets into the next question that we'll dive into, Brian. But why is this model so toxic to future Christendom? Yeah. I think that you can look back at it. And I've done a lot of this recently looking into the Young Restless and Reform Movement, which is just one, you know, one iteration of Big Fast and Famous and not always even the biggest, the fastest or the most famous. But by and large, all the famous celebrity pastors that I grew up with, like they're gone. They're donezo. Yeah. So, you know, you think about C.J. Mahaney, uh, you think about Josh Harris, you think about uh, the scandal that's rocked the church because of these guys you know, what happened to Acts 29, what happened to Mark Mark Driscoll. Um, It's mostly bad stuff. So it it would seem like, okay, in a movement, if you had like one guy that fell apart, you would go, well, you know, maybe it's an anomaly. Yeah. But when you got Darren Patrick killing himself, you've got just a very, very sad history of what happened to that movement. That's when I want to go back and I want to say there was something in that concrete mix in the foundation that is not working because- you can read the history of the early church, and it's not like that. Right. Um, I think one of the things, too, um, and, and Brian, I want to get your take on this. It seems like this whole model of doing church, there's, there's part of it that's plausible. Um, so I was talking to David Murrow recently. Pretty interesting book, really about this type of church movement. Yeah. Uh, which is called when, uh, Why Men Hate Going to Church. But, like, there's comments in there, like, he would say, you know, we need to do TED Talks and not sermons because— these really sell well and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. That sort of thing actually changes the way that you do church and has an impact on, again, what's toxic. Mm-hmm. So, so I guess speak to that. Why is that so toxic? Yeah. And I think once you get into the root DNA, that, that when you get down to the foundations you just, and you say, what are, what's the guiding principle here? And as soon as you admit that the guiding principle is something like, as we're going to get as many people as possible as fast as possible, however possible. And usually they'll say short of sin. I think even like Perry Noble, is that the name of the guy? Yeah. Or um, maybe even Rick Warren said something like that. As many as possible, as fast as possible to be introduced to Jesus, however possible, short of sin. It's this like normative principle on steroids, where instead of discovering the the foundational mission and methods of the church in scripture right. and then if fleshing those out and live and simply obeying them and trusting well apparent god probably knew what he was doing when he established his church instead of that we're saying well you know what let's just sort of say what is jesus really trying to do get a lot of people hey you know what businesses do that uh marketing does that all sorts of other things do that. So let's say, oh, the scriptures are good. We're still going to, we're going to incorporate the scriptures. We're going right. to preach the scriptures still. And, you know, we're going to give advice from the scriptures. But fundamentally, we're just going to sort of distill down the mission and then try to pursue that mission 
disconnected from the methods that God has established. And what happens is that very quickly, I think men, one, overestimate in pride mm. the, the, their own ability to come up with better methods than God's methods. That's the most proud, arrogant thing ever to say, you know, God really didn't give us everything needful for the man of God to be trained in righteousness and equipped for every good work, like the Bible says. But, you know, maybe we have some other methods that are going to work. And so fundamentally, I think that what it does is it elevates hubris. It elevates human ingenuity and pragmatism over principle. It ends up elevating personalities then over communities, centralism, this mothership model built around personalities over decentralization, lots of people. All of these principles you get in the scripture, like leaven versus conveyor belts, right? All of these things, if you just discover the mission and methods of the church in the scriptures, you'll get all of these actually, you know, the principles that work. They, it's not like the scriptures don't work. They just take time. They, they say, like, let's, let's operate on a very short time horizon. Let's think, in six months, how many new attendees can we get? Instead of, hey, what is going to produce a church here in this city that in 100 years or 500 years will not only be here, but be stronger than it is today? Yeah, I think that model is diametrically opposed to the normative means of evangelism within the covenant arc that God has made. Like, the way that he relates to people— through the old and new covenant was not primarily through those sorts of means of the mega church, the big fast and famous model, which is get as many people in the door as possible. We'll water it down. So it's more palatable. We'll wrap it up in whatever dressings that we can to make sure that people can swallow this thing. And really they become hucksters. I mean, yeah. Carpet Uh, carpet baggers. Yeah. And and it's really sad because you do have gifted men who are really strong leader types and they adopt a philosophy that is, like I said, diametrically opposed to the normative means of evangelism. And here's why I think it's so toxic is this is a hot take by me. Let's hear it. Yeah. I mean, it might be garbage, but the normative way that people have been converted and are united to God covenantally is through fathers. Hmm. It's through fathers, both in the old and new covenant. You have instructions and promises to fathers and to their sons. And so, when the gospel is preached, even to men, you know, that aren't in covenant with God and they repent, who becomes saved? Who is commanded to be baptized and such? It's their families. And so this is kind of the, the arc that you see throughout scripture. And, and what the big fast famous model does is it neuters the paterfamilias. Yeah. It neuters the father. And it replaces him yes. with, this, with this personality. Yes. And and so you can see why Christians then turn and they support things like statism. Yeah. Mm. It's just that writ large. Because it becomes not a a father-son sort of relationship, but it becomes who can give me the best bang for my buck. So, Dan, I want to ask you, you said that it it neuters fathers, the father-son relationship. My question would be how? Yeah, absolutely. So when you're buying religious goods and services, you're trying to get the best value from your money and from your attendance. And it does this functionally in so many ways, other than just the way that it evangelizes people is through things like programs. So we're going to separate your children from the congregation for worship. I mean, that that's nuts. Or how about this? Because we trust the experts, we're going to send our kids to the state to be educated, right? 
instead of obeying Ephesians 6 that says, fathers, raise your kids in the paideia and euthesia of the Lord. Even, even growing up, I wasn't expected to attend the main congregational service until I was literally on staff at the church as a worship leader at like maybe 17 or so. Mm. And that's when I started attending the adult service because they had so that, you know, basically the goal is if you're going to get customers, you need to make it as e- make the customer experience as easy as possible. So what's hard parenting, <laughs> disciplining your kids. Let's take the little kids out. Okay. You know, little kids, that's good. We've got them in kids ministry, but what if we, you know, teenagers can be tough too. What if we took, what if we had a youth group replicate a youth service at the same time as the adult? Well, when you're a pragmatist, you're, you're trying to always speak to where the person is. Uh, even, even Rick Warren said something, I'm going to butcher this, but essentially like people who have their needs met will come to your church is, is, is essentially what it is. As in like the people themselves know what they need most. Exactly. Like just follow your heart. Yeah. Like their, their, their uh, loves are properly ordered already. They already know the good, the true and the beautiful. No, no, they don't. Why do you think that the most popular novels sold in America today are like trash romance novels? And (laughs) it's because people don't know what is good. People need their sensibilities and their loves and their moral values and their aesthetic values trained by the really trained by the beatific vision, trained by God himself as our fountain of wisdom and goodness and truth and beauty. And, uh, you know, if you, if instead you say, let's do demographic studies on the culture, figure out what people like, and then let's, let's make the church look like that. You know what you're doing? You're literally making the church in the image of the culture. Yeah. It's literally what you're doing. Instead of telling all of the people, you guys you were jacked up. You need to be made in the image of the God man, right? Yeah. Totally backwards. Yeah. That's why we like this story of Boniface so much. Yeah. I mean, cause that's what he, he <laughs> yeah. comes into this Germanic people and he says, uh, you all are bloodthirsty pagans and you need the, the one true and living God. And so I'm going to go chop down your, your, your idol, big, your big God tree. Yeah. He didn't say, you know what? These people really like trees. Let's make a sanctuary environment that is shaped like the oak tree. And maybe we could put like, instead of the communion table, we could have like branches coming up and holding up the communion, you know? And it seems like these Germanic pagans really like face tattoos to, you know, celebrate the, the people they've killed in battle from the opposing tribes. I know it sounds bad guys, but maybe we should think about priestly face tattoos. It it seems like you're saying that their culture was bad, right? Cult human cultures are bad. And uh, they need to be reformed according to this. What, okay, what, this made me think of something, and I'm going to lose it if I don't say it. So I'm just going to jack up the model, the outline, and I'm going to say this. Why is this model so toxic to future Christendom? And I'm thinking about Mark again, uh, Pat, Pat and Mark Driscoll. And when you do everything Dan just said, uh, and you make the, you replace the father with this big centralized single um, celebrity figure, and whether that's Mark Driscoll, Matt Chandler, Paul Washer, I mean, even take good guys, R.C. Sproul or you know, Calvin or whoever you make one guy that, that father of everybody eventually. And then you, especially if you then marry that idea to the idea that what we need is cultural influence and marketing. All of a sudden it's really easy for that guy to justify almost anything. Think about what Mark allegedly did with his book. I think it was real marriage when they bought it onto the New York times bestseller list. 
with church funds. I think they spent like a quarter, allegedly quarter million dollars or something of church money to buy enough copies of his book to get it on the New York times bestseller list. Can you think about how easy that line of thinking is? If, if success is as many people as fast as possible, well, then we need cultural influence. We need to be seen as serious and important writers and thinkers and authors. So you know what helps? Endorsement by the New York Times. Well, all we have to do is put a quarter mil into it and we can get that. You just see how like you grease the skids in this model to as many as possible, as fast as possible, however possible, short of sin ends up dropping the short of sin part pretty quickly to build the platform of the father replacement celebrity. Yeah, yeah and then you'll basically do anything. You'll just do anything. I mean, Mark, you know, in, you know, in the Christianity Today podcast, again, Mark will talk about things like, I am the brand. Yeah. Um, and he really was. That's the thing. He, he was. He really was the brand. But it's also interesting, I think, from a, so my background is in journalism. And we used to always have a saying, I know it was coined by somebody big, fast, and famous, I don't know. But uh, it was called The Medium is the Message, right? I think there's a book to that title. Yeah, that's right. But the whole point was the way you deliver the message, the way that you treat your people in the congregation, what you're actually doing, and Brian, you hit on this earlier, you're actually changing the message. Right. So when you're Andy Stanley, you know, I started watching TED Talks recently because I haven't really watched a lot, and I want to say, like, what is this about? Yeah, what is when people say TED Talk sermons, like, what are are those? Didn't TED Talks come out, like, 20 years ago. We're yes. on the cutting edge. Okay, yes. all right, continue. We're, we're on the cutting edge. We're on the cutting edge. Just wanted to make sure. Bleeding edge. So the other day I found uh, TED Talks and I started listening to him, Simon Sinek. I literally, my first TED Talks of all time. And um, <laughs> I know it's so pathetic. But what was interesting to me, I was like, this is Andy Stanley. This is yeah. what he's doing. He's taking 12 minutes of your time. He's telling three cute stories, um, some insightful things. He makes you laugh a little. But what hit me about it is it's not really deep. It doesn't really challenge you in the sense of like a sermon would call you to repentance. Yeah. Um, and I, I but it's also very popular. Like yeah. you can sit there and go, oh, that was clever and interesting. It, it, again, I think it gets to this issue of if that's going to be your methodology, it's going to change your message. Yeah. Just like praise and worship music, which entered the church, that utterly changed how we saw the worship experience from something that we interact in and, and with and we sing and the congregation sings. Well, now it becomes something that we just stand there and watch. Yeah. And now when you tell people, hey, sing, turn up your volume, they're like, what are you, crazy? Turn up the music. Yeah, yeah. I'm not supposed to be doing this. So it's utterly changed what we do. And, and the last thing I'll say is just this whole conversation made me think about J.I. Packer. I mentioned the Redwoods earlier. but I think it's in a quest for godliness. He was talking about the Puritans, and he said, our age is like frail little trees. The Puritans were Redwoods. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the thing is, is if you want to cultivate the kind of Christians that shape the culture, that's not going to be a weak, shallow Christian. Right. Like, and what you see across America is we have the type of church and Christians overall who are like, well, Fauci said to do it, so I do it. Yeah. Love your neighbor. That's the depth of my theology. Yeah. A lot of this is actually, to me, centering on an idea or a contrast between two models that I think is important. And that starts to get to the center of why this model is so toxic, why it tends to replace fathers with celebrity figures is because if you think about it, what we're talking about with Christendom, this cathedral of Christendom is, is to, to, to shift the metaphor to the cathedral as the people of God, the temple, the living stones. The temple is built out of individual bricks that are living stones, right? Individual 
men and women and children and households. So, so fundamentally, this whole idea of Christendom, if it's done right, isn't built on a single celebrity pope figure. It's built on lots of, this is why, lots of self-ruled men who rule well and therefore win the world. Really what we're talking about is decentralization versus centralization, in a sense. What we're talking about with Christendom and Christianity, properly understood, is a whole lot of yeast-like multiplication where you have the thing is a living structure built of millions and billions of people, of human beings. And, and the health of that organism isn't going to be determined by one little brick somewhere, right? Or even the model for what each brick ought to be isn't going to be built by one little brick. It's going to be built by lots of households and men and women who are being shaped in the image of Christ. Mm. So, so when you look at a lot of these models, one of the tells that you always find is that things tend to be ultra, ultra centralized. They're a mothership, not a forest, right? They're, they're, they're a single big and often, you know, plastic redwood tree even. It's not real. It's fake. Instead of this big, vast forest. Don't you think a lot of that, Brian, is just copying corporate culture? And what I mean is um, when you read about the history of like, you know, businesses in America, Dan, you, you could speak to this probably too, but like even Walmart when it first started wasn't what it is today. And now we've gone to this mega globo yeah. corporation that dominates everything. I would argue America was actually stronger at many points when you had distributed power, property, et cetera. Yeah. Wealth, even the foundations of democracy were dependent on widespread property ownership, people who were well-educated. Yeah. The Reformation brought about a lot of this. We've changed the fabric of our culture by treating people like consumers. Yeah. Would you rather have 100 million households, each with a quarter acre garden growing a diverse local crops or 15 mega farms growing all the food in America? It's, it's the anti-fragile philosophy again, because centralization is very fragile. It is. It looks strong. Yeah. We've seen that that with supply chains. Yeah, but supply it's not. chains. Yeah, with like meat shortages, there's only a few packing houses or butchers or I, I, I can't recall where the weak spot was, but essentially there are only a few of them. Yeah. And so all of a sudden during COVID, we had no meat or the prices went up really high because they're shutting them down. Yeah. Since it's so centralized, since it's almost impossible because of regulations to open your own packing house. Mm-hmm. And so the centralization model is very fragile. That's why you see one man falling, the whole thing crumbles. Yep. Yep. It's because it's so completely centralized. Christianity is anti-fragile. Yep. The whole thing is built on people dying. <laughs> right. And that's how we win. Yeah, we win by dying. We win by dying. In fact, you kill us, you're helping us. Yes. Like, it, it, in fact, anything you do to us, according to Romans 8, 28 to 36, you're actually helping us. Okay, take away all our money. Well, he's working famine together for our good and poverty. And, you know, kill us. He's working our death for our good. And- Well, pardon the interruption, but we wanted to give a quick shout out to our first patrons, first supporters of the show over on Patreon, Nate Norris, Emmanuel Drake, Josh Bishop, Thomas Stone. Thank you, guys. We appreciate your support. If you want to become uh, a supporter of the Kings Hall podcast and get access to things like our after hours show that we produce with every episode just for patrons, you can head to kingshall.org. Click on support the show there in the menu, and there are a few ways that you can do that with all sorts of benefits. But just remember, you guys, we we get more of what we support with our dollars, what we vote for with our dollars. And if we want high-quality Christian media, we have to know that, man, that takes time, 
a lot of hours and work goes into a show like this, a lot of dollars and resources. So we appreciate you guys who are supporting the show. We'd like to invite you, if you're not, uh, and you enjoy the show, to jump on board there. But uh, with that said, let's get back to the episode. So this also gets to, to one of the reasons why I think that this big, fast, and famous model ultimately is deeply patronizing to men particularly is because men, like if men are being made in the image of Christ to be self-ruled by the spirit of God, to build households, to, you know, go about their vocation Christianly, it is so deeply patronizing when you say, no, just come and we've, we've done it all for you. It's easy. You don't have to do any, you don't even have to break a sweat to come to church. Like we'll give you some football jokes even to like make you feel included. And it's so deeply patronizing when you give men a vision of essentially globo homo statist hegemony yeah. where it's like, look, you guys just watch your TV, go to your job. It won't really be that meaningful, but I mean, you have to do something with your time. And then, you know, we will give you this church on the weekend that you can go to bring your family. We'll do everything for you. We'll disciple your kids, your wife, you know, don't, you won't have to lift a finger, gents, just kick back. It's like, to a man who actually understands what God made him to be and do, that's just like so deeply patronizing. Yeah, it really is emasculating. And it's interesting too, because again, like you think of the special forces, uh, it's really hard to get in. And so people really want to be in it. I've always said that with men, it's like, people are like, we just need to keep lowering the bar for men. And it's like, I think you actually have to do the opposite. You have to yeah. raise the standard to what God's standard is. But, but I'm really fascinated by this question of how it, we're actually reshaping the church by the way that we try to be big, fast, and famous. And I, I want to throw this out there. I know, Dan, you're a Proverbs guy. Yeah, sure, man. All men are Proverbs men. Should yeah. be. I think the manly men. So one of the things I thought of, it, it's, it's kind of so simple you could almost miss it, but Proverbs 13.11 says, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. I think it could be said about the church, right? That we want to build long and slow. Correct. I literally had that on my screen. I'm so proud that's, of you. That's right one of Brian we, and I, as we notes. talk about investing, that's our like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, short term losses. Well, you yeah. know, it's a. But long term is what <laughs> it's in. Long yeah, term. that's right. Yeah. Russia invades Ukraine, all the stonks go down. Oh, <laughs> just wait, just loss. wait. Big time horizon. Putin, no! Come on! <laughs> No, you take it away, Brian. You had it written down. <laughs> the, well, no, I pulled it up earlier when we were think, when we were talking about this. I was like, you know what? It's like Proverbs thirteen eleven because there's a principle under that. He's talking about finances. Yeah, that wealth gained hastily is going to dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. That's true of finances, but the principle underneath that stands, and it's that the fall and sin. What it makes us constantly want to do is try to find cheat codes for the world that God made, where it's like. Wisdom is essentially understanding that God made a world full of rules and laws and principles and patterns. He made that they're built in, they're baked in just as much as math is baked in. Those are built in and wisdom understands that those exist. It does the hard work of the glory of Kings to search them out. Yeah. And then it, it does the even harder work of not just knowing them, but trying to live at peace with them. Yeah. And this is one of those principles that if you try to basically parent like this, as an example, you say, once a year, I'm going to sit each of my kids down and I'm going to have a big, long talk with them about all the bad things they did this year. It'll take about 15 minutes and then I'll give them, a, a, you know, one big spanking for all that stuff because it says spare the rod, you know, spoil the child. And then that'll be good. They'll get 18 or so of those before they leave my house. And well, 
I'm not talking about spanking a one-year-old. Anyway, <laughs> but the scriptures instead are like, no, not one big thing once a year, 10,000 acts of small discipline and parenting yeah. all the time. That's what produces godly children. Uh, dollar cost averaging into the market over a long time horizon is what produces durable wealth. Right. And so many times we don't want to do this. We just want to like, no, I'm going to ape into, uh, you know, whatever it is. Dogecoin. GME or yeah. yeah. AMC, you know, AMC. And then I'm going to diamond hands, baby. But so I can be wealthy in a, in a, in a month. We lost some people. We did. I'm sorry. So let me bring it back. So John Calvin said this about church growth. Okay. He said the excellence of the church does not consist in the multitude, but in purity. Mm-hmm. It, not the number of people, but the purity of the church. And what's central, what is the central message of Christianity is the gospel. And the very thing that we're trying to like sugarcoat and stuff down people's throat is the thing that the scriptures say is a stumbling block for the Jews and it's foolishness to the Gentiles. Yeah. And so we have to actually change the central message of Christianity into something that's more palatable instead of saying, no, no, this is, this is your, your job. You're, you're supposed to come and die. Well, and that's Dan, that's, um, I was reading uh, Jesus and John Wayne, highly recommended, highly, <laughs> highly not recommended Fired. book. Fired. We just edited out everything. Eric <laughs> everything. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting though. Historically, I think that she is right about one thing in there where she talks about really with Billy Graham, they started the Christian bookstores, um, Christian radio. And one of the things they realized was to reach all these people from across all these denominations, they had to find what they called a core message. We might call it gospel centered today, but they had to find a core Christian message that was basically so watered down that like anybody would approve of it Yeah, within Christendom, like even loose Christendom, anyone would approve. So again, it's this idea that you, you actually have to change the message. Uh, it, it reminds me uh, in seminary, we were reading uh, a Tim Keller book. Uh, I think it's called the worship, worship matters about the worship wars Yeah, and that sort of thing. But one of the things I hated most about that book though, that Tim Keller said uh, was really just like, it's just a style issue. Oh, so the like, medium is the message. Yeah, the medium is the message. It's a style issue. I, here's where I would, I would push back, though. I would say, what is your heart? Is, is your heart to preach the full, unadulterated, we'll get into this, theological maximalism? Is yeah. that what you're trying to do? Or are you trying to say, look, I, just want, I want this to be as palatable as possible? Because what, what it drives at is you can only have one. Yeah. You can only have one. Jesus, I, I was struck by this this week. Jesus, John 5, says this very thing. How can you believe when you receive the glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Are you in your ministry, fundamentally, you have two choices, one of two choices. You're either going to serve God and seek his glory, or you're going to seek the glory of men. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, but the big fast famous is all about the glory of men. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of built into the name, which some might say is is unfair, but the whole, when you're observing these models, especially after they've failed and there are some that are still going on, but it solely relies on the approval of men. That's why you have to change the message is because people then approve of it. I mean, maybe Brian Sauve is not the nicest guy in the world on Twitter. Maybe he's not. Maybe he is right though. Maybe Mm. he's right. 
about a lot of these tweets that people get upset over. And then Christianity starts to respond like the pagans with the same narratives. And they're so worried about the perceptions of men yeah. versus fearing God. You, you have well, some- just to say, this is one of the things I get commonly. I think Eric does. We've probably all gotten it is that a lot of people will be like, Hey, you know, brother, I agree with what you said, but is it really helpful right now in this moment? Because don't you realize you're just alienating a whole lot of non-Christians Yeah. from the, and, and, and here's the fundamental error. It's a big, fast and famous error. We're going to talk about it even in the future as we talk about revivalism and decisionism and other models that we need to knock down. But fundamentally, that error is to think that you can basically, uh, by by small degrees, work somebody into the kingdom. It, it, it you know culminating in them bending the knee to Christ, where it's like you basically say, "Let's edit the message. Let's make what is this? What is the least that somebody has to do to become a Christian? What's the minimum? What is the That's- bare minimum?" The minimum, right? Absolutely. Okay. They and just Brian have to pray is saying, this chop, 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 <laughs> Yeah, baby. that's right. What is the minimum we have to do to get the Germanic pagans to worship us? Well, you know what? They just need to, let's start with Christ is Lord. And they're like, okay, Christ is Lord. I, this is probably not Germanic, but Christ right. is Lord alongside Thor. Well, we'll, we'll talk about that later. You yeah. know? No, you can't. They're a little rough around the edges. Yeah, you can't edit out. <laughs> Stop all sacrificing of the, yeah. your people to yeah. the God Thor. Okay, let's just do one sacrifice <laughs> a month, and then we'll 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 whittle it down. And it's like what we want to do is edit the edges, the rough edges off of the message until it's more palatable to. And what it's just such a sneaky, smarmy, patronizing bait and switch. Yeah. You're treating people like idiots. Where you're like, hey, it's like the Mormons at the door when they don't tell you about Kolob and they don't tell you about how you know. Oh, actually, there's a ton of gods and we believe that God had sex with Mary and all these other things. They just tell you, we're here to tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ. Another, another Testament of his gospel. You know, he died for your sin on the cross. Do you want to become a Mormon? That's how they do it. Now they just, they round off all the hard stuff. And, and the lie there is that, is that basically you can trick people into becoming a Christian and then disciple them later. And it's like, no, pretty soon they're going to find out. They're going to say, wait a second. The Bible says all these Things about like, it seems like Romans one is saying that lesbianism is bad. You don't like the gays. And, and, and here's the thing is that instead of doing that, what we should be doing, (laughs) what we should be doing is saying, uh, you know, something like, okay, where is the culture deeply enslaved to false gods? All right. That's where we need to go because that's where they're enslaved. That's where we need to pronounce freedom to the captives. Well, don't you think Brian, like, that, that's where we, you and I particularly run into so much trouble on social media is I'm actually looking for the idol. I'm like, where's yeah. the idol? We're idol hunting. Yes. And where's I'm like, Thor's Oak? where can I go poke it in the eye? Chop, chop. And most people think like you're the most contentious person. This is what I get from most people. How dare you? What <laughs> the hell do you think you are? So, so little thanks Mark. Mark Driscoll throwback, but like that is the response. Yeah. But, but but it's interesting what you're saying, though, because it's it's a fundamental misunderstanding about what we're trying to do. Yeah. What we're trying to do is say, world, you're enslaved to all kinds of wraiths and demon gods, and they hate you, and they're promising you freedom, but they're really delivering you self You know, think about something like transgenderism. They're saying, be freed. Be freed from the this this 
cage of a body that you've been given that doesn't match your inner child or your inner spirit. And so be freed from it. And all you have to do is take these pills and this hormone injections and cut off your genitals and you have to rearrange your body with plastic surgery and then you will be free and happy. And then the suicide rate remains the same for transgender people after conversion, post-conversion therapy and post-conversion. So you go, what, what the Christian ought to do isn't walk in and be like, let's not bring up the tranny stuff yet. Let's not bring that up because it would alienate them. Let's just lead with that. That's where they're enslaved. Yeah. That's where the shackle is. You, Paul didn't go into the, and, and Peter, they didn't go into the, the town squares and say to the Jews, you know, let's not bring up the whole they crucified Jesus thing. Instead, they were like, you crucified the Messiah. Right. You did. And when they preached to the Gentiles, the result was that it was so clear to the Gentiles that Paul and Barnabas were rebuking them for their worship of Artemis that for several hours they chanted nothing but glorious is Artemis the fair or whatever it was that they actually, I can't remember. Artemis of the Ephesians, something like that. Yeah, for hours. Why? Because they understood that Paul was actually telling them that their God was a nincompoop and that they should worship the true and living God. Oh, it's huge. So I want to ask a question about this because it, it relates to something that I mentioned earlier about Tim Keller's book. But I want to ask you guys, we tend to think today that culture is a taste issue. Our music, yeah. the way we dress, uh, you know, you call it a dress uniform, dress code, whatever. Uh, we've gotten in trouble for talking about modesty online. But, but I want to ask, as we get into some of these specific issues why are these elements of culture, music as a form of culture, why is it not irrelevant? And the way I want to ask that is when you look at the big, fast, and famous model, it actually, music changes, right? So, right. so, so I, I want to kind of like describe what music has become in the church today. Yeah, yeah, let's hear from the sweet psalmist from Ogden. The sweet psalmist from Ogden. You are gay. <laughs> why are you gay? Why are you gay? <laughs> Yeah, you know, the medium is the message. So when you walk into a church service, let's just imagine, follow it with me here. Maybe we'll do some sweet, you know, cue some sound design. You walk into a service and, you know, you're, you're five minutes late. They've gotten past the cheesy announcements from the hip youth pastor with the faux hawk. And so they're, they're doing the worship music and you hear a serene, warm synth pad playing underneath. I hear it now. I hear it now. The angelic tones of the road. And then, you know, on top of that, you hear amplified very loudly and beautifully and with perfect compression. This is breathy female angelic vocal coming over. You call me. Oh, wait, copyright. Never mind. I won't sing it. Yeah, don't you know, do it. And she's singing something about, you know, maybe like how you just need to take that next leap of, of faith, whatever it is, you know, because God will grant us the victory. And you hear that and, and you, you, you see the people swaying to the music and you can, you can kind of hear them a little bit, but... You know, you mainly just hear this band that is, wow, this is a good band up there. They're so well produced. And, and then the lights kick on when the tom rolls kicks in and, 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 and the, the, the kick drum thuds on the floor and the tinkling cymbals come in and, and you hear, and it's just, I feel the spirit. you feel it. Like, and okay, here's the thing. The medium is the message. A lot of people want to say all of that is like the seasoning packet and, and really the substance is the ramen, right? It's the brick of ramen. Who cares what seasoning packet you put on it, man, as long as the lyrics are good. No, absolutely wrong. Absolutely wrong. Because we are not Gnostic. We're not just brains floating around there thinking about the uh, in- information input of lyrics. It's not what we are. We're embodied souls. We have voices. We have eardrums. 
We have emotions. We have a limbic system that's pumping different hormones into our brain as the result of different sounds because God made a world where sounds change us. What is all of that saying? Well, you know what it's not saying? It's not saying sing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's not saying the main thing I should think when I walk in and hear that the worship of the church, if I'm obeying the scriptures, is the singing of people to one another, not them hearing somebody else sing to them. It should be sing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody in your hearts to God. And so what we should be hearing is the thundering of voices. Fundamentally, God made it that way because we're not Gnostics. We're actually changed by our contribution, by our singing. Worship is not really receiving spiritual goods and services from religious professionals and musician, musical professionals. It's us coming to worship the living God together. Together. So, I mean, that's just one little facet of critique. We could talk about the, the vapid, you know, the vapidity of the lyrics and all kinds of other things. But I think that's one angle of critique against this musical culture. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. I, I even think of something very simple that you mentioned, like participation, right? If yeah. you are required to participate and and you are one of many voices carrying what's happening, participatory worship is very different than um, spectator worship. It is. So, Dan, I want to ask you you a question because you guys have actually, like at the church, there's been a transition. Yeah, so it's interesting me talking about the music ministry since I have Nothing to do with it, almost. Other than that thundering bass. Yeah, but Dan is the sweet baritone of Mm. Ogden. You ugly. I was like, (laughs) 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 yeah. So, so it's interesting. I'm talking. I'm talking to Brian Sauve across the table from Brian Sauve, who is like he does the music. He is a musician. He's actually very, very good. You should check out his music. Actually, sing psalms. Where Where can they find it? You know, you can find it other my name, Spotify, Apple Music, iTunes, Amazon, Deezer, T Doll, all of them. All of them. Well, I've never heard of any of those. Sign up on so, Patreon though. Support Brian. I whoa. I support Brian. Brian is working on an my album guy. right now. He's working on an album and he's going whole hog whole hog. He is taking everything that he's made from his music and throwing it into this mm-hmm. to actually get it produced. Professionally. Professionally. Yeah, yeah. Not just like him in the basement. So of a I church. don't spend like a hundred hours producing music with YouTube videos, not knowing what I'm doing and one hour actually writing Psalm settings. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, uh, so the evolution of our singing at church has been really interesting because the target years ago, we had different leadership was more big, fast, famous Mars Hill. Yeah. Was the target. Cool band. Yeah, cool band. We're talking like 2009, 2010, 2011, yep. that time period. Was there some affliction tees and like emo glasses and stuff? And not only that, there was rap. No. There was rap. No. Eric. No, there wasn't. Cue, cue it. There was rap. Mister, should I call you Mister? Why are you gay? <laughs> so that was the history of our church. We have been reforming. We're not. Like fully there, these guys they they gotta take this. I'm seriously. sorry. Yeah, you're right. You're right. We're, this is the first time reformers. somebody gave us the control of a soundboard, Dan. Yeah, yeah. Someone you gave it. You gave yourself, <laughs> you gave yourself control. control Eric. I said you should give me the soundboard because I wouldn't use He'd it. Never use it. Brian told me to do it. Okay, so we went from singing bad music. I, I mean, actually, a lot of hymns. A lot of the. 
I mean, a lot of the hymns, yeah, but again, them, it was the content medium yeah. sort of question and where we have since gone and it is absolutely glorious and the barrier of entry is high. That's another difference is that when you enter our church service, it is robust. You need a bulletin to know yep. what is going on. And it's not just Tuesday at a coffee shop right. where they might have some spoken word like poetry kind of garbage going on. We are singing in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, in a, a lot of times four-part harmonies. Yeah, even fuguing. And fuguing Different tunes. parts singing at different times. And it is, it is absolutely glorious. Yeah. What it is, is it is... 17th century Christianity, cathedral Christianity, right. oil painting Christianity, and not microwave popcorn Christianity. Yeah. And that's the difference. It's not, we're singing songs that were written hundreds of years ago and are so good that they're still around. Yeah. In David's Psalms that are 2,700 years old, 3,000, I think 3,000 years. Anyway. Yeah. And what does that say? Well, it said the four parts. What does that say? It says that we want the men to be able to sing as men. We don't want, you know, you walk into a, I went to a Phil Wickham recording one time where he was recording a live acoustic album thing at Costa Mesa, California. And, and the guy is a musically virtuosic in his voice. I mean, he probably has like a five octave range and, and pitch perfect. So Just Brian. <laughs> well, continue. <laughs> anyway, the guy, he, he's a great musician and very few men could sing along with him. But when you say to the men, there's a barrier of entry, men. We actually won't patronize you. We think that you can do hard things. We think that you can learn how to sing glorious, thundering bass parts. And they're going to be written for you to sing. And all the way up, we're going to have, for men with, God made men with higher voices too. Like the tenor is not effeminate. A tenor is gloriously masculine when he's singing as a tenor. Uh, a soprano is gloriously feminine when she's singing her part. And so we're saying this music is actually from the ground up built so that everybody can sing. It, it's, it's built. It, what else are we saying? We're saying that apparently the worship of God is something that actually should require our effort. We every Tuesday at night, we get together nearly every Tuesday and we work on this. We literally practice. Why? Because the whole church is a choir. We're commanded. Every Christian is commanded to sing to one another. So apparently, instead of showing up and being like, yeah, but parts are hard. Like, it's so much easier if people could just like, I don't know if sing you could to just me. sing like to me and I'll <laughs> mumble a little bit sometimes, but it'll sound really good if I don't do anything. What is that saying? It's saying the worship of God should basically take no effort. We sing uh, Psalm 134 in yeah. a round. In a three-part canon. Yeah. And uh, the first time Brian did this. I thought he was insane. He gets up front and he's like, okay, here's what we're going to do. You know, Psalm 134, behold, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord. Okay. We've sang it. Right. And here's what we're going to do. This section over here, sing it. And then repeat the last line and section two, start to sing it. And then section three, all at different times. And then you'll unite at the end and it'll be great. And I was like, this guy is nuts. <laughs> People are going to leave our church. Well, every decision we make, we're like, how many people are we going to leave? Lose. But anyway, <laughs> and the thing is, it is like, I get jazzed. I'm like, Psalm 134 is coming. Yes. It is good. And oh, it, yeah. Because as, as we have practiced, and everybody knows like what to do. And if you come in, having never experienced <laughs> the visitors, it, they have no idea what's going on. But I guarantee you, they're experiencing the same thing that we are. And that's where you have everybody sing the song together. And then you're almost disjointed and then you reunify yeah. 
in worship of God, singing Psalm 134 that you said was written thousands of years ago in worship to God. And we've replaced it for some chick on stage that's probably really hot and maybe not even that modest, you know which I've experienced. She's not wearing a head high. covering. She ain't wearing no, no head, head covering. covering. No, that's actually, so in preparation for this and stuff we've been talking about, I went back and I was watching all these, the most popular Hillsong videos on YouTube. And one of the things I realized was like, you look in the audience and it's like these young guys in a trance and Dude. there's this like 10 to 10 lady up front singing and you're like, well, I think I actually know what's going on here. Yeah, right. No, that's a good point. You see all these videos, the B-roll they get. If I go on to our like video B-roll service and type in worship, you know what comes up? Men in skinny jeans no. swaying with their hands lifted with purple lighting and smoke machines uh, singing or, you know, like emoting along with this. And, and, and guys, here, here's the point we're not making. We're not saying that musical excellence is bad. We're, we're not saying that artistry is bad we're not saying that aesthetics are bad we're not even saying like i would even go so far as to say we're not even saying that embodied responses to god and worship are bad david danced before the lord but what we are saying is and in fact sometimes we sing that we are you know making melody on the harp and clashing cymbals and, and oh, oh no different please, one. please please <laughs> whoa whoa you ugly i just absolutely 100 percent See the light in... Okay, now... <laughs> guys, I was a, um, a staff megachurch worship leader. So once Dan triggers these songs, it's like a code word. Should we word. burn him as a heretic? <laughs> I think we should burn him. It's like a code word that goes That's... off in my Russian sleeper agent, skinny jeans, you know, days come back. And I'm all of a sudden, I'm like, my glorious... You know what? It's, it's, it's almost... If you watch the rise of YouTube channels, certain yeah. YouTube channels, it's the same thing. It's like some dude in skinny jeans and, and some hot chick. Yeah. I, it's marketing. It's just marketing, and yeah. it's disgusting. Yeah. And we're not saying that beauty's bad. Any to, to, no. to close the loop on this, what, no. we, what we're saying: bubble gum in the hair. There's good bubble and bad. gum in the hair. Again, I'm actually saying my point isn't that we should spend less effort on the excellence of the worship, but that we should spend much more because it's not eight people on a band. But where is the excellence? Yeah, it's the people. It's the people. Someone should walk into our services and they should get a sense after they overcome the weirdness of it. They should get a sense of the utter holiness and transcendence of God, that he is a God who is worth, worthy of a people spending a lot of their time, apparently, to do something with no pra seemingly practical purpose, like learning four-part harmonies to produce rich vocal textures to the glory of this God that they say they worship. It should be like... Wow, these people keep telling me that their worship is them ascending to the heavenly Mount Zion, surrounded by the firstborn enrolled in heaven, and festal shouts of angels. And I can see it. I can hear it. I'm experiencing it right now. Because when I, I'm, I'm, you know, in this scenario, the visitor's seated right in front of Dan. And when Psalm 98's playing, all of a sudden he's like, the victory have won, the victory have won. And he's like, maybe the victory has been won by their God. I think he believes it. He seems to believe it. <laughs> you know what's great about the centralization versus uh, the non-centralized model then is that visitor that comes to the church, who does he ask what's going on? He doesn't ask. He doesn't have to go to the pastor. No. He can say, hey, guy that's sitting next to me, why do you kneel during confession? Yeah, why is on? there wine during communion? <laughs> why, why are you not singing the melody of this song? Yeah. And anybody should say the, the answer. They should be able to know it yeah. because we love our people enough to disciple them in how to worship the holy and living God. Yeah. Yeah, that's huge. So that's music. One of the things is, is building, too. Yeah. The space. Um, Talk about the difference. 
you know, I when I first read, I think Angels in the Architecture, I thought, uh, wow. So this is Doug Wilson and uh, who else? Douglas Jones. Douglas Jones. Our architecture actually says something about what we believe. So, yeah. I, what's the difference between what type of church do you typically see with a mega church versus this older? We're, we're using this word cathedral, right? But why is that more significant than just again? A lot of people today will say, well, that's just a preference choice. Right. But it actually says something about our theology. Yeah, it says something about who you expect to come here and why they're expected to come here. And, and basically the megachurch architecture, and just as a preface, don't think if, you're, if your church meets in a strip mall or whatever, we understand, like, not everybody has $10 yeah. million. Dollars. High We're school not saying, gymnasium. We like met whatever. in a cafeteria yeah. when yeah. the church started. So now we, by God's grace, have this glorious 100-year-old historic church building, and, and it's glorious, and we love it. Um, but when you think about what the megachurch architecture, I'm talking about when they actually have a choice and they're building from the ground up with a hundred million dollar budget. What do they choose to build? Well, they basically choose to build a, a, a conference center crossed with a mall. Mm. That's what they, that's essentially what they build, right? A theater conference combined even, with a mall. I've even heard people say, um, I, I went to one church in the Midwest and I thought maybe it was like they purchased an old warehouse, mm -hmm. but it was like a warehouse style building, concrete floors, nothing on the walls. It just looked like a big box store, like a Sam's Club that was empty, and they turned into a church. But um, I talked to the, the pastor and the staff there, and I said, why did you choose to build a church this way? Because, you know, of course, I'm thinking in the cathedral model. And they said to me, well, it was the cheapest square footage that we could, we could possibly build. Yeah. And so I was thinking, okay. Uh, but going back to something we talked about in last episode, it, it definitely is not the type of building you walk into and you go, whoa. No, right. It's not a transcendent experience. No, it says it, it says something about the ephemerality of the what they're doing. What are we doing? Well, we're doing something ephemeral. We're doing something that is fundamentally no different from what you're doing in all of these other environments. Whereas in in if you walk into a cathedral, and some of this is like there there is overlap here with Roman Catholicism and baggage there. And so I'm not saying like one to one, let's adopt all of this. But you walk in, you say, well, there's the narthex, there's the the nave, there's the atrium, there's the portico, there's the bema, there's the altar. And every single, comp there's the aisles, everything has a purpose. And every purpose is connected to something that the people are doing and that they're supposed to do here. And it's stuff that they don't necessarily do in other contexts in their life. Right. It's saying that when we gather on the Lord's Day as the, the hosts of God, as the armies of God to worship the living God and ascend the mountain together, we're doing something that is different. So when people say, all of life is worship, man, I can worship God on the mountain, there's a nugget of truth in that, and there's a huge lie buried. The, the truth is, yes, do all of life, whatever you do, eating or drinking, work heartily to the worship. Lord. Do it for the glory of God. But when we actually say, what is the corporate worship of a people, that's a different thing. It's actually a different thing. When we come for word and sacrament and when we come for singing and fellowship, we are doing something that is actually distinct. And I think the expectation there, uh, something I've heard James Jordan say is, you know, people continually say in the secret sensitive, the big fast and famous model, well, we want church to feel normal. We want people to walk in and feel comfortable. And James Jordan would actually say, no, I want you to feel very uncomfortable here. Exactly. And, and this gets to the heart of culture building is, if you're going to build a, a separate culture that is its own cultural engine and a driving force in the midst of paganism, it has to be robust, powerful, other. It has yes. to be in that transcendent other category. That's right. You, you should walk in and feel like, wow, I've never experienced anything like this. Yep. And apparently there is something about me 
that does not yet correspond and match this vision that's in front of me. Yeah. And it's beautiful and glorious and I want to be conformed to it. Yes. I want to be the kind of person. It's like when you listen to classical music, maybe as a teenager, and if you had good parents, sometimes you're like, I know my parents want me to like this. Um, but it, I like other music better. But I, I know in my heart of hearts that there's something glorious about this, that if I were a more interesting person, if I were a better man, I would appreciate this. Yeah. And so then you work to appreciate it. And you can because it's truly glorious. Sounds like legalism. <laughs> Daily legalism. No, here's the thing. If uh, I define culture, you know, the cultist being worship. Right. The culture is formed by your worship. And so the big, fam- fast, and famous model where it fails is that it's still worshiping the same thing that you worship every other day, which is consumerism. Mm. Right. Yeah. It's just consuming things or observing things. It's not actually things. changing anything about your life. Right? No, no, it's not. Yeah. Like Brian said earlier about the men that go there and they're like, don't worry, we got it all taken care yeah, of. Really. You just sit there, observe, watch your football, you know, retire and die. Like yeah. that's your life mission versus yeah. what we're supposed to do is say, hey, the the elders, the pastors, the People leading worship are actually leading the people in worship. That's right. They're not performing worship for your benefit. You know, the people are actually doing things. And and, and that's actually one of the core problems that the Reformation needed to answer. And where megachurch and high Roman Catholicism at the time of the Reformation overlap is that they were both providing a fundamentally similar model where you had a religious professional class providing you with spiritual goods and services in exchange for something. Mm. And instead of the people of God coming to participate robustly. So uh, yeah, of course they're going to gatekeep and they're going to say, no, you cannot put the liturgy in the, in the vernacular, in the language of the people, because then they would get all uppity and start participating. No, they're, they're here to observe. They're here to receive only. That's not worship. Worship is sacrifice. Right. Do we come before God empty handed? No, we come to Romans 12, one present our bodies as living sacrifices. So, so megachurch Christianity ends up repeating the errors of Roman Catholicism by essentially removing the people in very important ways from the worship of God and the sacrifice of the people to God. Does that make, am I crazy? Or do you, no, do you see I that? Mean, even our slogan that we're, you know, we're trying to make self-ruled men who rule well. Yeah. What the mega church model does, the big fast famous model does is it makes ruled men. That's it right. It makes rule not self-ruled men, it makes ruled men by incompetent CEO type overlords who are not actually it's respectable. Actually, it's still patriarchy. It's an yeah. evil patriarchy. Here's the thing. When you when you get that model, again, the goal of that model is to get as many people as fast as possible by whatever means. What are you trying to get them to do? Again, the least possible thing to say that they're a Christian, which is what? It's decisionism. It's decisionism, it's emotionalism, it's revivalism. We're going to talk about that next time because often that's why it's so deeply patronizing is because it's not telling men come into the church because we actually know what a real man is. We know what a real woman is. We know what, we know what a person is. And we're going to equip you for all of Christ, for all of life so that you can now go and be a king. And Roll a queen, up your sleeves. Right? Roll up your sleeves. There's work to do. And we Sharpen need your you. sword. Don't sit down and just receive. Actually, here's stuff man. to do. You're a king's man. So so next episode, we're going to be talking about that. And, and to land the plane here on the big, fast, and famous, fundamentally, the reason that we would reject the big, fast, and famous model is for no reason less than it is not the model that Christ gave to us for his church. Mm. Yes, we're post-millennial. Yes, we're going to see big things happen. The kingdom of God is going to be vast. But it is not going to be a plastic redwood tree. It's going to be a world-swallowing forest.
It's going to be a world swallowing forest where Christ redeems literally, you guys, billions of men and women, remakes them in the image of his son, makes them self-ruled, able to rule themselves, godly and dignified in every way, fruitful in every way, and then he will have his glory on earth. So we're thankful that you've joined us again here in the King's Hall. And our hope is that the Lord would use this work for your good and the good of your people. Remember this week, Festin Alente. Remember to make haste slowly. And we will see you next time. 